0: Well good morning. Good morning. <laughs> well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Morning. Good morning. Let's try again. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Good morning. I was worried. I was worried. <laughs> Whether you are here as a mother of flesh and blood, or as a mother by adoption, or a mother in Christ, you are so important to us and to your God ordained family. Mothers play such an important role in the family. And I worry from time to time that mothers and sometimes their families, and definitely our culture, miss or even downplay the importance of a godly mother. And I think it's, it's not only tragic, but that's not biblical. So today, before we jump into our Galatians study, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a woman named Yaqabed. That's with a J. <laughs> she has a hand spell that I feel so bad. Yaqabed <laughs> is how you say it in Hebrew. Right, so Yaqabed, which in Hebrew means Yahweh is glory. Yaqabed's name is found in the Bible. In Exodus 6, Numbers 26, and in Hebrews 11. But our story is found in two places. First in Exodus 2. And this story, it follows uh, the triumphant story of Joseph. Right? He's, he's uh, been sold into slavery. He goes up through the ranks. He becomes second to Pharaoh in all the land. And uh, through that, there's a, a great famine, and he, his family moves down, and he saves his family uh, in Egypt there. right? And the Bible tells us that 70 people came down, but they were fruitful and they multiplied. And so um, there was a lot of them. And, and there was a new pharaoh. If, if you read Stephen, uh, as he's getting, right before he gets stoned, he's giving sort of a, a history lesson to the, the Pharisees. And he says uh, the word he uses there for pharaoh indicates it's a different pharaoh. It wasn't a pharaoh passed down. So uh, there was a uh, culture there called the Hyksos culture. They'd come in, and they believed that it was a different pharaoh, completely different than any of them. It would have been out of the bloodline of the original pharaoh that Joseph knew. And he didn't know the Israelites, and he didn't know about Joseph. And so he looks out over his land, and he sees uh, all these Israelites. And there's, there's tons of them now, right? And he says, they're too many, and they're going to take over, and they're going to side with our enemies, and i got to get rid of them. So he tried three things. The first thing he did was he increased their slave labor, He put taskmasters over them, and made them work. he said, if they're too busy working, then they're not going to have babies, right? It didn't work. They kept having babies. So then he instructed the midwives to kill all the baby boys born to the Israelites. But the midwives rebelled, and they would not murder the babies. Finally, in one last desperate attempt, Pharaoh commanded all of his people to cast the Israelite baby boys into the crocodile-infested Nile. But Pharaoh underestimated two people. First and foremost, God. But second, Jacob. Had. Jacob had already had two children, Miriam and Aaron. And when Moses was born, she saw he was beautiful, and she knew in an instant that she was going to fight for her baby. She chose to stand in the face of a bloodthirsty Pharaoh and a godless, demon-inspired edict and said No that had been all that she'd done, it certainly would have been heroic. But Jacob didn't just stand. She also kneeled. She knew that God is sovereign and in control and that ultimately she could only accomplish little things. But God, God could do anything. So when she couldn't conceal the baby anymore, she wove a basket out of reeds and put a little pinch or tar on it so it would float and not not get baby Moses all wet. And uh, she put him in the Nile. We still have to do this today as parents. We don't literally chuck our children into the river, but we do have to release them into the the current of the culture. At some point, there is a time where our children are placed into a basket of prayer and lowered into a muddy river full of people and things that want to devour the budding relationship with Christ that we've carefully instilled in them. Things that want to rip them from the arms of Christ and destroy them with empty doctrines of demons, and hell. To be sure, fathers feel the pain of separation of mothers, mothers who have white noses, and worse, from the time that little child first opened its eyes, who was agonized over school projects and birthday parties and have shared Christ and his word with them over and over and over, from before that baby could even say a word. Now they have to let that little precious piece of their heart down into a river and watch it float away. Are there words for that feeling? The Bible doesn't tell us what Jacob was feeling, but it does tell us what Jacob was thinking. In Hebrews 11, uh, it tells us, by faith, Moses uh, Moses' parents hid him for three months, for they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Jacob lowered Moses into the muddy water of the Nile amongst the reeds and walked back to see what God was going to do with her precious baby. What terror and dread she must have felt for that baby boy as she walked away. What terror and dread do we feel today? Mothers know that not every baby is Moses. Mothers know that some babies don't escape the Nile. But mothers also know that eventually all babies must float on their own. And so, like Iacobed, mothers have faith. Our God is a good God, a holy God. And if the baby doesn't make it out of denial, hold on to that faith with both hands and don't let it go. If we truly trust in the sovereignty of God, we know that he does everything for his plan. And this bumbling pastor standing here in front of you can't explain why. But God, God will. Someday, God will. And he's asking you to have faith till that day. Jacob was spared that pain, but it was quickly replaced with a different one. You see, Pharaoh's daughter found Moses amongst the reeds there, and she took him to be raised in the palace. But God, thank God for the butts in the Bible, right? But God arranged to have Jacob be able to nurse young Moses until he was weaned. Now comes the most amazing part of our story so she, she, through a set of circumstances, Yaakov is able to nurse Moses until he's weaned. Now back then, you know, nowadays we cut it off a little bit earlier, but back then they would go for several years. And so while she's, while she's doing this, she gets to talk to him, and she gets to, to tell him stories, and, and she tells him about his people, and she tells him about a deliverer that will come and take his people out of this land. And it, she tells him about the land that they're going to go to, and it's flowing with milk and honey, and she tells him about the, the glory and the holiness of Yahweh. And it may have even been that she told Moses that he was that deliverer. We know that when Moses uh, got into the scuffle with the Egyptian and he killed the Egyptian, then he the next day he went out and he tried to break up the Israelites, and they said, who are you to break us up? Are you going to kill us too? And the Bible tells us Moses was confused, that they didn't understand that he was the deliverer. one little Jacobin, against an entire kingdom that would tell him he was just a speck of dust among countless other specks of dust and would someday blow away and mean nothing. Mothers, today you are standing against an entire world that will tell your baby they are nothing but a clump of cells, that will tell your baby that even if they make it past the clump of cells stage, they're still a result of millions and billions of accidents not designed, not knit together in their mother's womb. They will tell your babies that your relationship with Christ is based on myths and legends, and you would have to be a fool to believe that nonsense. They would tell them there's no absolute truth, that the only truth that matters is what you feel here and now, and that your baby is just a piece of stardust floating on a rock through a cold and empty space with no purpose and no hope. The Bible doesn't tell us when Jacob had died. Uh, But we know that when Moses got into a scuffle, he was 40 years old. And then he had to to go away so that uh, Pharaoh would kill him. And he didn't come back until he was 80. So I think it's safe to assume she at least wasn't alive when he came back. She may not have even been alive when he left. She never got to see Moses gather the people of God and, and pull them out of the Egyptian land. She never got to see Miriam on the other side of the Red Sea singing the song with the women of Israel. She never got to see Aaron ministering in the tabernacle. She never got to see all that. But she had faith. Little Jacob had faith. And she knew that God was going to do big things with her children. Mothers. Women. Don't you dare listen to this world when it tells you you aren't important. Don't you listen to the lies that our culture tells you, that what you do is something that isn't absolutely vital to the kingdom of God. When someone says that a mom's job is demeaning or worthless, you look them in the eye and you say, Yaqobed! <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll at least confuse them. <laughs> One little Yacobed stood up to a kingdom, and look at what she accomplished! Hebrews 11 verses 24 through 26. Start in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater, uh, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of, of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And what reward was that? Heaven, the reward we all yearn for our children to find. Mothers by blood, mothers by adoption, mothers by the spirit of Christ. Remember Yaqobed and have a Happy Mother's Day. Will you please pray with the mothers switch that, pray for the mothers with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our mothers. You created such a precious identity and role for a woman who raises children at both home and in the church. We thank you for the ways mothers take care of us, how mothers teach us, and how mothers sacrifice so much for their family. We give thanks for the faith and the spirituality that mothers pass on to the next generation, and that mothers take seriously the biblical instruction to train up a child in the ways of the Lord. Mothers work so hard in and out of the home to provide for the many physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of their families, and we thank you, Lord, for the passion heart mothers have to work hard and glorify you we are grateful for how you strengthen equip and empower mothers to be the hands and the feet of jesus in their home and community and we thank you for the countless ways they bless us and take care of us thank you lord for blessing our families and this church with mothers who show what it means to put others before themselves amen when i originally sat down to write that little story it was going to be a lot smaller but uh I didn't plan on it quite going that long, but I thought it was a worthwhile endeavor. Okay. Let's turn now to the New Testament. Let's go to our Galatians study, which ironically is going to point us back to the New Testament. But for now, go to the, the, the New Testament. We're going to go to Galatians 3. And uh, we're going to go to Galatians 3.15. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible to read along, if you wouldn't mind chewing up your hand. we got a couple. Mark, would you, would you grab those? Oh, thank you, Teresa. Yeah. I'll we'll bring them along there. Got one up in the front, one here. <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jesus. Right up in the front there. you go. He's coming. Don't worry. He's coming. While he's doing that, I'll tell you. We've been studying chapter uh, 3 now for this will be our, our third week. And we, we looked at, at Galatians 3 and Paul. Um, shot right out of the gate with, you foolish Galatians, right? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he, he, he basically goes through and says, look at your experiences, right? Look at, look at what happened to you. When you believed that Christ was crucified on the cross, when you accepted him as your Savior, you received the Holy Spirit. And we talked about they would have seen miracles back then. They would have seen uh, possibly even an outflowing of the Spirit like uh, Passover, right? And, and they would have had all these experiences, and Paul says, look at those. Did you do that? Uh, did, you, did, did all of that happen because you kept the law or because you believed? And then he, he, he transitions, and this is what we looked at last week. He said, what you should have done was been like the noble Bereans, right? What you should have done is when they came in there, the Judaizers came in and started saying, ah, faith is great, but you need this too. You should have opened your Bible, right? You should have looked at the scripture.'" And so Paul opens up the scriptures, and we talked about this, right? He wouldn't have said, turn to Romans 8.28, because Romans wasn't written yet. The scriptures would have been the Old Testament. So he goes back to the Old Testament, and he goes to the oldest of the Old Testament. He goes back to Genesis. And, and he points out the fact that, that God made a promise to Abraham clear back before circumcision, clear back before the law. This promise was made to Abraham, and he proved by using the scriptures that that the promise has always been faith, and faith alone for right. salvation. Right. So this week, Paul's going to take a look at the law. right? And so he's going to look at the law, and he's going to look at, in verses 15 through 25. So if you're able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Galatians 3, starting in uh, chapter 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would would come to, to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor and led us to Christ, so that we we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Let's pray. Father, we pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is is continually in my hand. Yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Amen. Amen. The most famous breach of contract case in modern history was the uh, case of the uh, Pepsi Points. I don't know if any of you remember this. It it, it originated from a 1995 commercial. And it was obviously a Pepsi commercial and it was kind of humorous. It started off at a it had a little label on the bottom. It was a Monday morning, 7.59, and there's a, a kid getting ready to go to school, and he's got a Pepsi shirt on, right? And it says, uh, underneath it, the little label pops up. It says, T-shirt, 75 Pepsi points. And then he puts on a Pepsi jacket, and the label appears underneath it, and it says, leather jacket, 1,450 Pepsi points. As he walks out the door, he puts on some sunglasses and shades, 175 points. The scene switches then to the school, and all of a sudden, papers are blowing everywhere, and people are being blown around, and it's confusion. And in the view comes an AV-8 Harrier II jump jet. It's one of those military jets that can take off and land vertically, like this. It lands in front of the school, and the cockpit open, and the kid says, "Beats taking the bus. <laughs> and underneath that picture, there's a label, Harrier Jet. Seven million Pepsi points. Pepsi didn't really think anybody was literally going to drink seven million pizzas or Pepsis. (laughs) Don't drink pizzas either. That's kind of (laughs) gross. They just wanted to make a cool commercial. The problem was in Pepsi's fine print, listed in the rules, a person could purchase one point for ten cents. One quick trip to the calculator later. and a 21-year-old by the name of John Leonard discovered he could purchase a $33 million fighter jet for $700,000. And he promptly mailed off a check to Pepsi, hoping to get his jet. <laughs> Instead, Pepsi returned the check, explaining that the commercial was a joke. So John sued Pepsi. And the court later sided with Pepsi, of course, that the commercial was not a contractual offer. And the commercial was clearly tongue-in-cheek. No reasonable person would have thought they could get a fighter jet quite certain that Paul was not speaking of harrier jump jets when he wrote Galatians. But Paul did use the language of contracts in his writing. In Galatians 3.15, Paul says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it is ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The first thing I want to point out there is, is he says, brethren. Now, I, I told you how he started chapter 3, right? He called them fools. Foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you, right? And he chastises them. He gets after them. He says, you should have looked in your Bible. But now comes the teaching part, right? With all discipline, the end goal of discipline is bringing the child back to Christ. So now he's like, brothers, brothers, brethren. He says, look, even in our everyday life, a person doesn't go out and agree to buy a donkey for 100 bucks and then have the donkey dealer $50. You can't change the contract after it's been made. Even in a sinful man's world, that's how Pepsi got out of providing a fighter jet to a 21 year old. The court said there wasn't a formal contract. And so Paul moves on from 316 and he says, You can't, you can't change a contract, even in the, in the simple man's world, but God made a contract and you can't change it. And he moves on to 316 and he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So, Paul takes us back to Abraham again. Right? Do you remember last week when God made the promise to Abraham? Remember, he, 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 way before circumcision, way before the law, he makes this promise to Abraham. And he's, he, he ratifies it, and we'll talk more about this later. But this was all done previously. And now, Paul's going to jump forward to Genesis 22, and he's going to look at another promise that, that uh, God made to Abraham. So in Genesis 22, 18, if you want to turn there, this is the blessing that God is going to give Abraham immediately following Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. You remember, God said, take your only son, take him to Mount Moriah, which many believe is where Calvary was. Um, at that point, would would have been. Would have been. Uh, he said, take him there and... and Sacrifice him to the Lord. And Abraham, he sets up the the logs and everything, and he ties up Isaac, and he's got the knife up, and the angel of the Lord says, stop, 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 stop. Right? He says, but because Abraham had faith enough to trust God with his son's life, he says in Genesis 18, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And Paul latches on to that word seed, And he says, God didn't say seeds, he said seed. And who was that seed? Christ, the seed from Abraham. Paul was saying that God's promise to Abraham was Jesus Christ. And through that seed, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. He looks at it and he says, this goes beyond that little promise that he made for for lots of children and the land and everything. It's a spiritual blessing. It's a spiritual blessing for everyone, Jew or Gentile. He continues in verse 17. And he says, what I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So 430 years later. So Paul states this to Abraham, and then he restates it to Isaac, and then he restates it to Jacob. And then 430 years after that, the Israelites come out of Exodus, and, and or come out of Egypt, excuse me, And he gives them the law 430 years later. For you uh, that want to know the exact time, it was 645 years from the time that he told Abram he made that that promise to the time when the law came out. And furthermore, uh, Paul says the promise of the covenant of the contract was made and then ratified by God. You remember I told you last week that God gave him, he said, go out and get these animals. I want you to cut the, the cows in half. Right, put them on either side and lay the birds out there, and it sounds really weird to us, right? Because we we click yes to the end-user agreements that we never read. God only knows what we're signing away there, right? But the, the way that, the way they made covenants back then was they would do that, and they would walk through hand in hand, and the, the picture there was if we bre- if one of us breaks this contract, may we be like these animals here, cut in half, right? And God knows. There's no human on earth that can do this. God's the only one that can do this. And so he knocks Abraham out, and he goes through himself, making him the judge and the sacrifice. Paul says, looking at the scripture, the deal was signed and sealed, and even in our earthly contracts, once something that is signed and sealed, it's unchangeable. And he takes it one step further in verse 18, and he says, for if the inheritance is based on law, no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The interesting part is when you go back to verse 15, the Greek there that he uses for the covenant, uh, it can mean multiple things. It it certainly would mean contracts, but it also means wills, like the final will and testament. And what Paul is saying here is this, this inheritance that we've been willed, that we've been granted, Right? It's, it's not based on law. It's based on that promise. And, and certainly if I create a will for myself, somebody can't come in and say, well, you know, Lance, that's a nice will and all, but I think uh, Madison should get the boat and Tyler should get the Lamborghini. And they can't do that, right? They can't. Only I can change it. It's my will. I ratified it. I'm the only one that can change it. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying God ratified it. God's the only one that can change it. And it's not going to be changed. He, he says grant it. That granted there implies a gift. It's freely given. Now, we've been hammering on the law now for several Sundays, right? We've been going through Galatians. We've been talking about how it's not the law, it's not the law, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith. And there might be somebody sitting out there saying, gee, it kind of sounds like the law is useless. It's kind of like a screen door on a submarine or a waterproof teabag. Like I'm not seeing what the law is really for. One could even be like the Judaizers in Acts uh, 21, 28, when they cried out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches that all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple to defile this holy place. You might be saying, well, Paul is just, the big word is antinomianism, right? It means he doesn't believe in the law. Paul anticipates this. So that's why he goes into verse 19. He says, okay, I know what's coming. I know you're going to have this question, so let me just get it out there in the open. Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And continuing to, to verse 20 now, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one the law. It was added because of transgressions. Because how would we ever understand our need for a savior if we didn't understand what we needed to be saved from, right? Romans 3.20 says, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law comes for through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can't understand our sinfulness Or, I mean, for our Savior, unless we understand ourselves. There's a beautiful picture of this. It's really. Opera pro, we'll say. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, turn to Exodus chapter 19. And the the Israelites have come out of of Egypt, and they're all camped down at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And. God's about to give them the Ten Commandments, right? So, starting in verse 1, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord uh, called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus, You shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them, all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people all answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do! And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Up until this point, the Israelites haven't seen God. right? Column has gone in front of them, and and they've seen a pillar at night and a a cloud of smoke during the day. But they haven't seen God yet, right? And so (laughs) they say right here, uh, now if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. right? And they say, yeah, we'll do that. We'll obey your voice. Sure. They haven't seen him yet. This is why you have to fast forward to chapter 20. And and God gives them all the Ten Commandments, right? And then in verse 18, right after the Ten Commandments, we get this description. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick black cloud where God was. The same people that a chapter earlier had said, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, all that the words of the Lord say are good. We'll do it. Right? And then they bump into God. That's the problem that we have today when when Uh, got the the sinner's prayer. I'm not saying that the sinner's prayer is never useful, but I'm saying it used incorrectly. I mean, think about it. Did did you know God loves you? That's great. I love myself too. That's wonderful. Did you know that God doesn't want you to go to hell? neither do I. Right? I'm in. What do I have to do? Just pray this prayer. They pray the prayer, and they go on with their life like nothing ever changed. Because they haven't met God. They're like the Israelites out there. All that the the Lord said is good. Absolutely. And then God comes crashing down. We didn't read it, but earlier, before the the Ten Commandments, they say the the people all line up, and God comes crashing down on the mountain. And his voice sounds like a trumpet that just keeps getting louder. Right? It it never says it. it. it reached the max volume, and said no, it just says it just keep keeps getting louder, and there was thunderings, and there was lightning, and the clouds are doing this, right? You ever? I lived in Nebraska, so I saw when like tornadoes would come through, like the clouds would just churn like this, right? And the, these clouds are around this mountain, and there's flashes of lightning, and there's big thunder, and and the people they see God now, and they say, <laughs> maybe not. You you go talk to him. <laughs> we'll be back here. Right. Wait, just a chapter ago, he said, "All of the Lord's son of good." They hadn't met God. Allison has been reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia to the kids over the last month or so. If you aren't familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's amazing Narnia series, you should be. Uh, the whole series is based on the land of Narnia, which is ruled over by a massive lion called Aslan. And in Lewis's book, Aslan is, is Jesus. He's a, he's a picture of Jesus. And the story plays itself out, teaching lessons about the Christian life through a, a fantastical set of stories. But in the second book of the series, it's, it's called uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. right? And they, these kids enter the magical land, they go through this magical wardrobe, and boop, they pop out into the land of Narnia, and uh, animals can talk there. I told you it was magical, right? So they're, they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, they're telling them about Aslan and, and how he's coming and he's going to break the curse. And this, this white witch has laid the curse on the land of Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. Aslan's going to come break that curse. And they tell the kids that he's a lion. And the, you know, the kids aren't stupid. They've been to the zoo. They know what a lion looks like, right? They're a little concerned. They realize they're going to have to meet this lion. And so one of them says to, to the beavers there, he says, is he a safe lion? Mr. Beaver's response is one of the most apt descriptions of God you will find outside of the Bible. He said, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. Brothers and sisters, we don't worship a safe king. Heaven isn't a big safe space in the sky. Our God is fierce with crashes of lightning and smoke And as the voice is the sound of many trumpets, but he's a good God. And he is the king, I tell you. And without God's perfect and holy law, we would be able to sit back and pat ourselves on the back and stick our finger in the pie and say, what a wonderful boy am I, right? (laughs) The law was added to show us our transgressions, to demonstrate our need for a savior. Paul says it was ordained by God through angels and by a mediator. And it's a difficult passage to translate, but um, what it it appears to mean is the angels gave the the tablets to Moses. We know that Moses went up and he got the stone tablets that God wrote with the Ten Commandments on it. The first batch he threw down and broke, right, when the Israelites were partying with the golden calf. I to rewrite it again. But he had a mediator. And and, and that's what he's talking about Um, in verse 20. He says, it it shows us that the law was weaker because it needed a mediator. Whereas the promise, it was God and it was Abraham. And God was there. And he made the promise, and there was nobody in between. The law, Moses had to come up to the mountain. Remember, the people were still hiding way back. Until the seed would come. The law had a specific time period. Verse, verse uh, tw- uh, 19, there, I think, is what it was. Uh, talked about. Um, I'm going exodus there. Back up just a scotch. Why then the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator Until the seed would come. That's Jesus, to whom the promise had been made. There was a time limit of the law. Until Jesus would come, that was the time limit. Jesus had come, and he was showing them the law was dead now. We move on to uh, verse 21. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. And, and that may it never be there is kind of, I don't know, when I read it in my head, I think of like a British. May it never be. Right? But it's not like that. It, it'd be like somebody slamming their hand. i me like, may it never be. It's strong language in the Greek. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. God's law is holy, and it gives us insight into how God wants us to live our lives. But it doesn't give life. And now Paul, he's, he's going to say, okay, that's the, the law doesn't give life. So let me give you the three things, that, that the functions of the law. The law shows us our inability to be holy like God. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law disciplines so Christ can set us free. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later revealed. The, those, these words, these last two verses there, uh, some people have said, well, the law was there to kind of build a fence around people so they wouldn't sin. Right? It was to, it was to keep us in. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying there is the law were, we're cinder block walls with barbed wire on top, and it kept us in, and it kept us away from the freedom of faith. The freedom that came with Jesus, but the law condemns to save because in verse 24 it says, "Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith." And it, we don't. When we think of tutor now, we think of like an online, you know, you get your kid to learn math from somebody, or you take them to one of these, I think it's Kumon or something like that, and they learn with a with a tutor. That wasn't what it was in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the Romans liked to take the Greeks whom they'd made slaves. Because the Greeks were really smart. And they would make one of them a tutor for their child. And they would be in charge of that child. So they would get them up, they'd bathe them, they'd take them to school. In the beginning, they would teach them until they, the child grew to an age where they couldn't teach them anymore. And then they would grab them by the hand and they'd take them to school and they'd drop them off. And at the end of the day, they'd grab them by the hand and they'd walk them all the way home, take them back home. Right? They were a tutor. And that's the picture that Paul is using here. The law was a tutor, it grabs us by the hand and it leads us to Christ. And it sets us at the foot of the cross. It's there to teach us. But now that faith has come, we, know, we are no longer under a tutor. If you, if you ever want to know how to share your faith, right? if you ever want to know how to explain it in a way to a complete stranger, um, I would encourage you to Google the name Ray Comfort. Right? It'll do two things. The first thing it'll do is it'll help you work on your Australian accent for Because <laughs> Ray Comfort is Australia. The second thing it'll do is he uses the law to to show people their need for Christ. right? So he'll walk up to a complete stranger, and, he'll, and they'll say, uh, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. Oh, you're a good person. Have you ever stolen a pen? And I'll say, well, yeah, you know, I took one from work. You know? Ah, you're a thief. Have you ever looked on a woman with lust? Well, there's lots of pretty women, right? Ah, you're an adulterer. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? I'll say, well, yeah, I mean, there was this one guy, ah, you're a murderer. You need Christ. Right? And he'll go through it. And he, he, It works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't, but it's a beautiful picture of how the law is a tutor, he walks right through that law and shows us there's not one person on earth that can, that can manage that law aside from Christ. And he shows them. He says, this is what it is. The transgressions are here. They're real. Abraham's seed did all the work on the cross so that we can say like Paul in the beginning of our book here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray like David in 2 Samuel when he said, Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me this far? Who are we that you have brought us into your family? Who are we that you have blessed us? We are but dust, clay on a potter's wheel, but you, O Lord, have breathed your life into every believer here and regenerated our hearts of stone and replaced them with flesh. And through your Son, you have adopted us as sons and daughters. How can we ever thank you enough? Please watch over us this week. Please help our mothers to feel loved, not just today, but every day. And we will give you all the glory. In your heavenly name we pray.